It is good to be back in this area. It's good to see so many that I've known over the years and to see a lot of new faces as well, getting to know uh, some new members of the congregation here, new family for us. We're so thankful for that great blessing that God has given us. It is definitely worth a two-day drive. I'd drive further to be here with you. Uh, we're a little tired, but uh, all, none the worse for the wear. And grateful for a great reception already. Looking forward to these studies. It's been a, a long time in coming. Uh, Brian and I have talked about these studies for a long time. And um, I really, really deeply enjoy uh, sharing these lessons from the book of Genesis. And I hope I can get you to be as excited about them as I am. This is what I use when I study with people, when I study with non-Christians. And really, this is what I use when I study with Christians who are struggling. Because I believe a big part of the problem is we've forgotten who God is. <laughs> and one of the things I've discovered in going through Genesis this way is that in chapter 1, as we'll see, we meet God. <laughs> We're going to learn about his character. We're going to learn who he is and part of what he does. Then in chapter 2, we're going to meet ourselves. We're going to find out who man is and what God was planning when he made man. In chapter 3, we're going to see what sin is. And in chapter 4, we're going to see what sin does. And so as we look at those chapters in Genesis 1 through 4, by the time we're done, usually when I'm studying with a non-Christian, by the time we're done with chapter 4, this great question is, how's God going to fix that? <laughs> What's going to happen? And so I usually go to Mark from there. And we start off right away uh, with this good news. And I'll ask them, what good news is that? And they can right away answer, God's going to take care of the problem. Absolutely. And they meet Jesus there in Mark and see how God takes care of the problem. And so these lessons are foundational. It was actually a brother in Brazil who asked me why I didn't start in Genesis. I used to start in Mark. And he said, why don't you start in Genesis? People need to know that stuff. And he was right. And so I sort of began over the years going through, and I, and I got to where about halfway through chapter 4, we've got enough of the meat down that they're ready for the answer in Mark, and so we jump on. But I found that these lessons, they're simple. Uh, I told Brian, I've got PowerPoints, and there's, they're just loaded with information. It's way too much stuff. And so I want to leave those with you guys. I'll leave the PDFs or the PowerPoints with you guys. We'd never get through all the material if I did it by the PowerPoints. I'm a little on overkill with that. But I want to walk you through the studies the way I do them with people and sort of study with you. And if anybody comes in who's not a Christian, we'll be studying with them as we're studying together. I want to show you how it's easy to study with somebody by just opening the Bible and reading through the text with them. Sometimes we're not comfortable studying with somebody because we're afraid of what questions they might bring. We're afraid of, well, what if they know more than I do? Well, they don't know more than the text. <laughs> and so if we keep them in the text, we can answer their questions. And a lot of times what happens in Genesis 1 through 4 is we begin to answer some foundational questions that come up later in the gospel. And I just refer back to what we already studied in Genesis 1 through 4. And they go, oh, okay. <laughs> and so some of the tough questions you expect, they just never come up. Because once you've laid the foundation, when people start to see the application of that in the gospel, it makes sense. And so I really want to sort of get you comfortable we're just going through the text of the Bible, and we're going to do that in just a moment, really mostly on the next few days, looking at the text in Genesis. But I want to establish a reason for doing this ahead of time. Uh, most of you probably don't know this about me at this point, most of the congregation here, but I was an atheist who was trying to prove that God doesn't exist. And the way I chose to do that was to use my friend's Bible and show her all the errors that are in it. This is way before Google. I couldn't just look them up and say, here they are. I had to look at the Bible and read through it and find the errors. And the more I read through it, the less and less I found the errors. And the more and more I realized I was the error. Uh, I had the issue. And so God granted me enough humility and abundance of his grace 
to finally convince me that I needed to do something about where, where I stood. And then I decided right away, more people need to be exposed to this. I had created in my mind sort of a caricature of the Christian religion. And I had been off and on going to church with my parents. And I had seen a lot of the hypocrisy of people who confessed to be Christians but weren't living it. And so I just thought there must not be any truth to this. But the more I read the Bible, the more I realized those people really aren't doing what the Bible said anyway. So if we'll do this, that'll be the answer. And so I just want to share this with everybody that I get an opportunity to. I want them to see where the answers really are. And so sometimes when I'm doing these studies in Genesis, I'll hold public studies. I just did some recently in Barnes & Noble. When I was in uh, Charleston, we would do it at the mall. And people would come, and I would say, look, I can't make you believe in God. But I want you, when you're done studying these texts with me, I want you to know what Christians really believe. I want you to know what the Bible actually teaches. And you make your decisions from there. But you believe something that's probably not true. Even if you're religious, you probably believe something that's not true. Many people who are in churches don't know the text of Genesis. They don't know the God that they claim to be serving. And then we get to Mark, they don't know the Jesus who they claim to be following. And so as we study through those texts, they begin to see it so many times. I've studied with some religious people who've been uh, serving or, or claiming to be serving the Lord for decades. And they'll say, I never knew that. I never saw that before. And it's right in the text. But we have been conditioned to let somebody else feed us and not be feeding ourselves. And I want people to leave knowing they've been fed from here. One of the great benefits of a study like this is that as you're doing it with the person, they're learning how to study for themselves. <laughs> they don't need me anymore. After we've gone through two or three of these lessons, they can then read the text and, and come up with what is it actually saying. And that's a great blessing. I don't want someone to be dependent on me to be able to serve the Lord. And we don't want that for any of us. So I want to start tonight in Romans chapter 1. I want us to look at something that Paul says here. And I want to add a couple of other texts together with it and come up with this concept that Paul is establishing. In Romans chapter 1, I want to start in verse 18. I'm calling this establishing a God-based worldview. Because if we start with the world and try to find God, he is there. But we're looking through a broken lens. There's a great far side cartoon back in the day before there were memes and stuff. There were these things called cartoons. And, uh, and I grew up in that age. And there's a great far side cartoon where you see this man commissioning the making of the Liberty Bell. That great bell of liberty up in Philadelphia. Of course, it's got a huge crack in it. And the guy he's commissioning it from has a sign out front that says, Bernie the Bellmaker. And all of the bells on his shelves have a crack in them. And as he's talking to Bernie, he says, now, I want this to be an extra special. I mean, it's the Liberty Bell, after all. It's got to be special. And you realize Bernie's got a crack going through the lens in his glasses. Everything he sees has a crack in it. Well, that's the way people look at this world. They look through a cracked lens because this world was cracked. We'll see that in chapter 3 of Genesis. When sin came, the world was broken. Romans 8, Paul says it was subject to futility. So when feudal people, people that have been subject to futility, look at a world that's been subject to futility and try to find the answers in the world or in themselves, all they get is that cracked view. They can't see clearly. What God does is as we read the Bible, what happened with me, he puts the corrective lens on us. We can see through the cracks to see what was really meant to be. And once we see what was meant to be, then we understand what it is now and how God's the only one who can fix that. And so as we begin to look at these texts tonight, to establish this God-based worldview, I want you to just sort of think in terms of like maybe a dirty lens or a cracked lens. You can't see clearly until you've realized you've got a problem at first, and then you figure out how to fix that problem. And I want to 
uh, let you know with no, no uncertain terms, the text of the Bible is how to fix the problem of dirty or, or cracked lenses. The only way we can see clearly is to see how God wants us to see the things. And so Romans 1, here's how Paul put basically what I just said, starting at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There is a lot that Paul is talking about. As we go through the rest of that text in chapter 1, he begins to put up a list of the kind of sin that comes into people's lives once they've forgotten about who God is and are no longer thankful and don't glorify God as God. Once in their darkened and futile thoughts and hearts, they profess to be wise but are actually fools. Once they think that what they're seeing is a clear view, even though it's as cracked as possible, they believe they're seeing the truth and they'll call it my truth or her truth or your truth. But they're not seeing the truth because they've suppressed the truth, verse 18 says, in unrighteousness. They feel like something else is there, but they don't really want to consider what that might be because it doesn't fit their scheme. They can't see it as clearly with that cracked lens, and so they suppress that truth, and they hold on to this truth, this little nugget that they believe that they've understood everything better than anybody else, and they profess to be wise in their foolishness. And so Paul simply says that God has given them up to uncleanness. Their thinking is not right. And it can't be right when they start with themselves or with this world as the starting place. Now, it is interesting. Paul says that God is clearly visible. If they'll look at the world and recognize there's something behind this world that's set it in motion, that's put it where it is, they begin to recognize there must be a creator. But even that, they begin to suppress (laughs) They begin to think that these things just are, and man has just come above it all. He has evolved into something wonderful, and shouldn't we be proud of how far we've come? <laughs> what? If it is evolution, how can pride come into it? It's just something that happened. But it's not. It's greater than that. And this list of sins then that comes in, all of these sins from the egotism that's in our own evil hearts, Paul wrote this in the first century, and it sounds like you picked up a a newspaper or you got online and looked at whatever the news is for the day. All of these things are exactly what we see going on. This hatred, this envy, murder, strife, deceit, disobedient to parents in the middle of that list. (laughs) Haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, all of that. Because people have rejected and suppressed the truth that comes from God. Now what he says here is that God has manifest what may be known of himself, showing it to them clearly 
by the creation, by the things that are made, that seems like a strange place to start, but it's really not. In fact, you're going to see that's where we're going to start. Tomorrow when we really look at the Genesis text, isn't it interesting to consider that when Moses is beginning to tell this people that have come out of Egypt, this, this lot that has been pulled out of Egypt, that's been rescued by him, when he begins to tell them who they are, he doesn't start with Jacob. He doesn't start with Abraham. He starts with God. And he starts with creation. Do you ever think about how important it is? The Bible itself begins with the creation story because the person we most need to know is not Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. It's God. And so the Bible begins with God and creation and his manifesting himself through creation. And isn't that interesting? That's where Paul begins. In Romans chapter 1, when he begins to talk about the need for the gospel, where does he start? With the God that manifests himself in creation. If you had an opportunity like Paul had, in a town like Athens, where all the great philosophers have come together, where all of the great seed of human knowledge, where all who profess to be wise will meet to talk about all these new things. That's the way it's described in Acts chapter 17. They were only there to talk about any new thing. Where would you start if you had an opportunity? Are you familiar with the text in Acts chapter 17? Let's go look at that quickly. I just want to show you that what we're about to do stands on solid ground. Paul in Romans begins with creation. Paul at the Areopagus, when he begins to speak with these philosophers in Athens, he starts with creation. Isn't that amazing? Acts chapter 17. I want to start at verse 22. Actually, let me remind you of verse 21. All the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing, professing to be wise. They're just wasting their time in this foolishness. But that's what they're doing. And so they've invited Paul, who seems to be a babbler of some foreign god. He's talking about this man who he claims died and came back to life. And so here's what Paul has to say. And I want you to notice that he starts with creation. Acts 17, verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was, as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Not only does it start with creation, he starts with the God of creation. In Acts 14, he does something very similar, saying that God has not left himself without witness. He's given you times of plenty, times of joy. He's speaking of the God who is the creator, who's made this world in which we live. And there are vestiges, there are obvious glimpses of his presence, even though this world is a broken place. And so some people just blame God. Well, the world's broken, it's all God's fault. No. The fault lies with us, in fact, and we'll learn that also as we go through Genesis. God is a God of order. And he created a world, a universe, that's a universe of order. But what we'll learn as we go through the steps in Genesis, as we go through the chapters in Genesis, is that when people disobey orders, disorder is the result. It's not that the orders were wrong. It's that we disobeyed them. What did we expect was going to happen? We cracked the lens. And we'll see that very clearly when we go through our text in Genesis. 
So one of the great benefits in beginning this way is, well, this is what the Bible did. This is how God began. This is how Paul, the apostle, began. There's other great company therein. There's a man who the Bible claims was after God's own heart. We know him as King David. Have you ever read Psalm 19? I know Bryant has. He's probably studied it with you. <laughs> Appreciate so much his work in the Psalms. He's encouraged me to really dig in. But look at Psalm 19. This has long been a favorite of mine. And what I began to notice about Psalm 19 is David does exactly the same thing that God did in starting the Bible with creation, that Paul does in starting Romans, his treatise on the gospel with creation, with the God of creation. What he did at, in Athens with all those philosophers, he started with the God of creation. That's what David does in Psalm 19. Let's read together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. <laughs> what did David do when he wanted to declare to his generation the God that he serves? He talked about the God of creation. And he said, you know what? God manifests himself in creation. The whole creation is talking to you. The sun, when it goes across the sky, is there anybody in the world who is immune to the effects of the sun? <laughs> who can't see or feel the sun going across the sky? At night, I remember as a child looking up at the sky and staring at the stars just going off into infinite depth, into as far as you could possibly see, and wondering, why are they there? <laughs> what is that all about? Well, here David says, it's all up there saying, God made me! <laughs> Look at me! It's to the glory of God. And it's a language that speaks to everybody on earth. <laughs> Most of you know I spent 13 years in Brazil. I had to learn another language. My wife speaks Portuguese. Now I speak Portuguese and English. She does speak English as well. Some of you have lived in other countries and have had to learn another language for that. But there is a language that's universal. It's what the stars are speaking to all of us. And that what the, the message is, God made me. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, God manifests himself in the creation. And he says there, very simply, if you can look at the stars and say there is no God, there is no excuse for your broken head. <laughs> you just aren't thinking clearly. We can look at anything else that man has made and say, wow, look at that intelligent design. And we can look at the stars and say, look at that random chance. 
The word that the Greeks used, that Paul would have talked about at the Areopagus, was the word cosmos. It means order. The word we use to describe the heavens, the word that philosophers and intelligent people use to describe all the heavens, the word that means order. Because the Greeks could clearly see, as the Chaldeans way before them could see, those things are all moving according to a set pattern. Every time we can count the seasons by them. By the way, we'll see that in Genesis 1. God set that up. Somebody put that in order. It didn't just happen that way. Order doesn't just happen. That's another thing that God has shown us in this world. He's allowed the brokenness to show us that disorder is continuing and it's growing. It's multiplying. Because somehow the order got broken. But we can long for, we groan for, Romans 8 says, the order. There's something that should be there. But it's missing. What happened? Who's to blame? We are. And we'll learn that if we're open-minded and open-hearted. As we read through the text of the Bible, we will see that God made an orderly place. And men brought about disorder through their sin. I want to turn to one more passage to sort of establish this thought. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. And here I think we get more than we recognize that we're getting. I think especially as we make a synthesis of what we've been looking at in Romans 1 and in Acts 17 and in Psalm 19, when we look now at Hebrews 11, when you consider what the Hebrew writer is saying here, now you think about this for a moment. Here is a Hebrew of Hebrews. We don't know who the author was, but he certainly knows his Old Testament. He quotes it extensively. He's writing to Jews that are struggling with having to leave behind the law and follow after this new thing that Christ has brought about, and it's so much more comfortable in the law. We're already being persecuted by the Romans. At least the Jews will accept us if we keep the law, <laughs> and we trust that God can save through the law. And he's saying, don't do that. Because in doing that, you're rejecting Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. So he understands this Jewish need to understand what was going on in the old law. But look at Hebrews 11. I want to read verses 1 through 3. Here's a man who is both Hebrew and fully Christian. (laughs) Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Again, there's a lot going on in these three verses. Recently, I I heard an expression I thought was kind of interesting, calling faith sort of a sixth sixth sense. (laughs) You think about the fact that we, we interact with the world with our five senses. But there is a part of us that understands that what we're actually seeing, we're seeing through a broken lens. And so faith bridges that gap. Faith clears up that with us. And faith is a revelation from God. I'm not saying our feeling, our response to faith. I'm saying what God revealed. Faith fills in the gap. Faith puts the substance there where we couldn't step because there's a chasm. Faith puts the step there. (laughs) Now we can step across in faith, trusting in God, that what we felt was missing all along is something he provides. Faith is that substance. It's the sixth sense that allows us to interact properly with the world, even though the world is cracked and broken. And so I really like that idea. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. God manifests himself. We don't see him. There's so much evidence. It's what Paul calls forth in Acts 17 and Acts 14. It's what David's calling on in Psalm 19. So much evidence of him we cannot see, yet we love. We know he's there. He's proved himself over and over and over if we're willing to examine the evidence. 
the elders obtained a good testimony by faith. And we have a list of what they did in Hebrews 11. We're not going to read through that tonight. It'd be a great study, but that's not what we're doing. Verse 3, though. Here's where I want to make the synthesis of all we've been talking about. It's by faith that we understand that the world, some versions have that the universe, that's the idea here, were framed by the word of God so that the things which were seen were made of things which are, uh, or were not made of things which are visible. God created from nothing. And that is something that's revealed to us by faith. In other words, what I believe the Hebrew writer is saying, the same thing I believe Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, is that God has shown us, not only by his existence, not only by the mechanisms and the order that exists, but he's shown us by revelation how he made all of the universe. That is Genesis chapter 1. That's where he does that. And so I believe very clearly Paul and the, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews here had this same concept in mind. That if I want to know for sure how the world is made and what its purposes are, God's told me that. I've got to be willing to listen to it on his terms. I've got to be willing to meet it where he tells us what it is. I cannot discover it wholly on my own. The first step I need to do is to come to realization that he is. The second thing I need to figure out is that he has revealed himself in a very special, special way in a very specific way to us recently in february i was in brazil and we were going through a, a series of lessons from the book of isaiah and one of the questions that came up not necessarily from isaiah but one of the questions that came up with these young christians is there are two things you must resolve in your life i think this is this is paramount two things you must resolve the first does god exist we're presuming that those who are here believe he exists but you've got to you've got to wrestle with that does he exist or not? Paul says he's put all kinds of evidence there. I have examined that evidence, and I've come to the conclusion he exists. The second question is similar. Is this his word, or is it not? <laughs> On those two questions, everything we're going to do in terms of our service to God hinge. First, if we don't believe he exists, we're not going to follow up. If we believe he exists, but don't believe his word is his revelation, we're going to have all kinds of foolish thoughts about God. There are two things that we must do. We must glorify him as God. When we see that through the Old Testament, it means you accept what he says and you do it his way. <laughs> That's what we must do. Nadab and Abihu, when they were killed, he told Aaron, you hold your peace because by those who come near, I must be glorified. What they do? They offered profane fire. They didn't do what God said. They did what they thought was right. That is where religion is these days. It's not, not important enough to look at the Bible and see what God said. We know what we're doing. <laughs> We've got a whole history of how we've been doing things. We'll just keep doing it this way. It's always worked. Worked for my parents. Worked for their parents. Let's just keep doing it this way. Uh, is it what God said? Who cares about that? We love God. Why do we want to worry about what he said? We just love him. Really? How far would that get me in my house? I don't care what my wife says. I love her. It doesn't matter what she says. It wouldn't, wouldn't last very long. Certainly not with serving the Lord. But that's what so many people's attitude is. It doesn't really matter what he says. It just matters what I feel about what he says or what I feel about him. That's not what the Bible says. We must glorify him, and we must be thankful. Those two things walk hand in hand. We're using everything he's given us. How are we thanking him for it? What is the return we're offering? Do we trust that he is, and do we trust that he's revealed himself to us in a very specific way? Once we wrestle with those two questions, then we've got a, 
start wrestling with how am I going to then apply. If I believe this is his word, this is his speech to me, then how am I going to apply this in my life? And it means I'm going to have to humble myself and I'm going to have to glorify him by doing what he says in his way. So Hebrews and Romans chapter 1 are saying God has specifically revealed himself through his special revelation in his word. Now, Tonight, we're not going to get very far in Genesis chapter 1, but I want to look at the first five verses together with you. I want to begin to show you what that looks like so that when we get in and start digging into the text uh, tomorrow and Sunday and Monday, God willing, we'll sort of have a feeling for this. So go with me to Genesis chapter 1. And this is usually my first study with somebody. Nine times out of ten, we don't get past the fifth verse. <laughs> An hour-long study, we read five verses, and we talk about those. And it's not cumbersome. It doesn't feel weighty to them because they're many times this is the first time they've had any contact with the Bible. And so there's a lot of basic questions that come up. But even if there's someone who for a long time has been going to church, has been reading the Bible, they've never really studied it. They've just sort of read through it and had somebody regurgitate some things to them. So as we look at these five verses, there's some questions that are going to come up. I'm going to throw them to you the way I would do if I was sitting across the table with somebody. And we'll just talk about these five verses for the next 20 minutes or so. Genesis chapter 1, I'm reading from the New King James Version. I like it when there's a lot of other versions as well, because we see some other readings. People have questions about those, but it's helpful. It fills in some of the blanks. But I'll read from the New King James. You follow along in your version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What was there before the beginning? I just throw that question out. If God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth, what was there before the beginning? What do you think was there? Somebody want to answer that? What was there in the beginning, or before in the beginning? <laughs> there will be a void of some sort. Yeah, we'll see that. Nothing, I hear. That's the answer. God was there. The creator of necessity must exist before his creation exists. So the void may have been there in terms of material, but God was there. Paul said that God has manifest himself, even his eternal power and Godhead. God's eternal. God was there before time existed. God was there before anything else existed. So often we confuse those two terms, eternal and immortal. God is also immortal, but that's much less. Immortal simply means cannot die. Our souls are immortal. Immortal beings have a beginning, but don't have an end. The angels are immortal, it seems, from what the Bible describes, spiritual beings. It's flesh that dies. It's this life that is mortal. But God is not only immortal, he's eternal. He also had no beginning. He was there before the beginning. So from the very first verse of the Bible, God is showing us his eternal nature, his eternal power. It's so subtle until you see it. Until you actually look at it and ask that question, what was there God was. The Bible will teach us in lots of other ways God's eternity, but this is really simple. He was there before the beginning of anything else. So 
So in the beginning, what did he make? What did he create? In verse 1 still. The heavens and the earth. This is a way of describing the entire universe. The Jews didn't really have the same words we, we had to describe some of these concepts, and so they would just sort of line out things. And so you've got all of the heavens, and you've got the earth. What their idea is, we might say terrestrial things or physical or carnal things, and then heavenly, celestial, or spiritual things. Those are two different realms. You've got a physical realm and a spiritual realm. You've got a heavenly realm, you've got an earthly realm, and those will be juxtaposed all through the Bible. But God made all of those. God also exists above the heavenly realm. Sometimes we think God is contained within heaven, but that's not really the case. The heavens is sort of part of his nature, but it's a way that he can express his nature to us in a way that we can understand, even though it's still almost unfathomable to us. He's more than that. He's more than the angels. He's more than any other created heavenly celestial being he's above that somehow part of his eternal nature part of his eternal power because he made that as well as everything we recognize as being physical there are physical properties even out in space it's because of things that copernicus observed and things that isaac newton talked about things that later on einstein would synthesize that they were able even to travel in space and there's things out there, even though the weight and things are different, they still follow the same physical properties. They're not out into some spiritual realm once they've left the atmosphere. Things are still governed by gravity and by movement and by velocity, by all these, these physical rules. God created all of that. He made these things when he created the heavens and the earth. And he'll tell us how they're meant to function if we'll listen to him. As he began to create the physical part, the earth was without form. Some of the older versions had the word chaotic. I love that word. It was a mess. There was just stuff everywhere. Now, remember, God is teaching us something as we go through Genesis 1. I don't believe that God was incapable of creating something from the beginning with order, but he wants us to watch as he takes something that's disorderly and puts order to it. He'll take the chaos and make order out of it. So he's letting us see behind the scenes, as it were, his act of creation. And so we get this earth without form and empty or void. That was the word that came up. There is nothingness, really. There's just this huge void. And there's also darkness. It may be an abysmal darkness or a deep darkness. There's a question about the translation here. My version says darkness on the face of the deep. But it may be that the darkness itself is just abysmally deep. That philosopher, uh, philosopher's idea of if you stare into the abyss as it stare back at you, that idea of just an un unfathomable distance of nothingness. That seems to be the concept here. God is eternal. He's not bound by space or by time. The eternity of nothingness is nothing to him. <laughs> but that's what we're seeing. But I want us to notice these three specific things, and we'll watch God's creative power at work against these three specific things chaos or disorder, emptiness or void, and darkness. We've already seen in these first five verses, he's going to take care of darkness pretty quickly. All he says is, let there be light. Darkness is gone. All he had to do was speak. But again, he's teaching us, isn't he? The power that God has resides in his word. It's the very same word that we read in our New Testament and our Old Testament that's been written down here for us. It's the word of God that's here. Do you notice how David made that leap? He's looking at the creation, then he says, and your law 
is perfect. It converts my soul. He, he understood. God spoke into creation. And he communicated with his creation. Specifically with the creation that can respond to him, which is man. He spoke to us. And he spoke to us about how he made creation. But I want you to watch formlessness, emptiness, and darkness. By the way, turn back with me to Romans chapter 1 real quickly. I want you to notice that what sin does, and we're going to see this as we especially get into chapter 3, sin always inverts things. Sin takes the order that God created and creates absolute disorder, turns it on its head. Romans chapter 1, I want to read verses 20 and 21 again. I want you to think of those three terms we just read, chaos or formlessness, emptiness, and darkness. I want to see if you notice them in what Paul says here, starting in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Anybody have a different word besides futile there? Maybe not. The root of that word means formless or chaotic. Just think about that for a second. They became chaotic in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Isn't that interesting? Their hearts became darkness. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The root of that word is emptiness. Vacuous. What happened with sin when you reject God? You become dark. You become empty. You become chaotic. No wonder people are clamoring for justice. They don't know what they're asking for. But they feel something's wrong. And so they want, I don't know, societal justice. They want transgender justice. They want justice because they feel like they've been wronged in some way. They have. But they've created the wrong. And their kind of justice is not going to resolve the issues. But God's can. They became dark. They became empty. And they became uh, chaotic because they rejected the order that God established. Now, I want you to notice that as we go through this creation week tomorrow especially. I want you to notice God putting those things in and man saying, no, that's not the way I want it. <laughs> and then man complaining that God didn't do things right. <laughs> you rejected it. Going back to Genesis 1. There is something else that's interesting, I think, in verse 2 here. We see the situation of the earth, but we also see the situation of God. This is the first time God introduces himself in the Bible. I want you to think about that for a second. How do we meet God in the Bible the first time in verse 2? The Spirit of God. I think verse 2 is where most people go ahead and jump ship. Because people forget that God is spirit. Now it might be easy to do in our end of things, in our perspective, because we think of God first as this guy who came to earth as a, as a baby in a manger and then was rejected and was put on a cross. We see God as a man. I think as we go through the book of Mark, we can understand some of the, the struggles that Peter and the others had because they look at Jesus and they understand somehow that this is a special man, that he's God, and yet they stumble because they see him as a man. <laughs> he's asleep in the boat in a storm on a pillow, Mark tells us. He's the only one that tells us that detail, but I love that. He had a long day of teaching. <laughs> 
And then he goes and he's sleeping on a pillow. That's who they saw in the boat. They didn't see God laying in the boat. And so when he wakes up and calms a storm, they go, who in the world is this? They didn't see it, even though they saw it. And I think we miss it too. God is spirit. But what do we try to do? We try to appease him like we'd appease a man. I'm just going to bring more offerings and he'll look over. He won't pay attention to my sin. I'll just give some more money. I'll just pray longer to justify robbing widows' homes. I'll just pray longer prayers. <laughs> That's what the Pharisees were doing. <laughs> I tithe twice. I tithe ten uh, percent of everything I gain. I fast twice a week. Look how good I'm doing. God, aren't you proud of me? God's spirit. Don't try to manipulate God like you manipulate a person. He can see right through that. He doesn't care about your stuff. God, the spirit wants you. <laughs> And that's where he's trying to get to when he's showing us all this that he made. We meet God the first time as a spirit. Is that important? It's absolutely imperative if we're going to worship him properly. I want to share with you two texts that prove that. The first is in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Here, remember that this book of Genesis is written to this ragtag bunch of people, about two million in number perhaps, some have postulated, that have been brought out of slavery in, in Egypt through these amazing miracles that God has performed in their presence, they've come out into the desert and Moses is telling them who they are. They've had 400 years to forget who they are. 400 years of oppression, trying to remember but not looking very good, like the promises maybe weren't that true. But Moses has brought them out and he's telling them who their God is and who they are. And by the time we get to Deuteronomy 4, they've come to Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy, they've already wasted 40 years in the desert. The whole generation has died. And Moses is trying to remind those few children that have grown up now, maybe not a few, probably several hundred thousand, that have grown up now, that watched their parents rebel against God and die. He's reminding them what they first saw when they came out of Egypt and got to that mountain. Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 15. Take careful heed to yourselves. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as an heritage. But the Lord has taken you, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Did Moses think it was important that they understood that God is spirit and not like anything that he made? He said, don't you try to make even an image that represents him. You remember how he appeared to you on that mountain? He was a column of fire. He was lightning and thundering and smoke. He was all this stuff, but try to ask somebody to draw a fire. We'd get as many different images of fire as there are different people here. They might look similar, but fire has no substance. Remember when Moses first met God? The burning bush, flame that wasn't consuming the bush. It was an, an image of something spiritual, using something physical, a parable perhaps, to teach something uh, spiritual. These flames, but they weren't real flames. That's what caught his attention. That bush is not actually burning. Why are those flames there and the bush isn't burning? And when he got there, it's God talking to him. God, Moses first met God as a spiritual image, this flame that wasn't actually a flame. The people of Israel first met God at Sinai, as Moses reminds them here, but they had met him before in all the miracles and in the column of smoke and fire that was guiding them through the desert. Grab smoke. What do you got in your hand? <laughs> it's not there. I saw it a second ago. 
Grab a flame, don't do it. <laughs> but if you could, when you open your hand, it's not there anymore. It's something that's there, but it's really not physically there. That's what God was giving them, this image. And so Moses said, you remember that when you go in to worship the Lord your God. Don't make him anything less than that. Did Jesus think that was important as well? I said, well, there, it's a tie into where I'm going. John chapter 4. <laughs> there is a woman who has doubts about how she ought to be worshiping. She's a Samaritan. And her parents have taught her that they should worship on Mount Gerizim. Yeah, that's, that's where there were some wells. That's where uh, there had been a history of meeting with God. But you Jews say we ought to worship in Jerusalem. Which is the right place? That's her question when she realizes Jesus must be a prophet. By the way, he's spoken of all the husbands she's had. <laughs> so he knows some things. Maybe he knows the right answer to this question we've been wrestling with. Where is the right place to worship? John 4, verse uh, 22. He tells her, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He had told her right before that in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The place is not what's important recognizing God's spirit nature, worshiping him in spirit and truth. That's what's important. <laughs> Did you see that? Moses thought it was imperative if the Israelites were going to worship properly that they understood that God is spirit. Jesus thought it was imperative if this woman and all those who are true worshipers who are seeking God were going to worship him in spirit and truth that they did it in spirit, recognizing that, as he said, God is spirit. That's exactly the words he said. How did God first present himself to us in the Bible? In Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Do we recognize that God is spirit, or are we trying to appease him as though he were a man? It makes all the difference. It'll make the difference in the people we're studying with as well. This is a, an aha moment for many people when I'm going through this study with them. And God is spirit is powerful. We think of men, we think of weakness. You think of Jesus on the cross. So often people, that's what they think of. That's not the last image we have of Jesus in the Bible, by the way. Ask the Apostle John, who saw him as the glorified king and fell at his feet as a dead man. Now, he had seen him on the cross. And that's an image of weakness. And that might be what's so appealing sometimes to people. My, my Savior was this weak man. He's weak like me. He didn't stay that way. He is powerful, and that's what we need. If he's weak like me, maybe he can't help me get through the difficulties. Maybe I've got to take things on myself. But if he's the one that John, who leaned on his breast at the dinner, and yet fell as a dead man at his feet when he saw him in all his glory, if that's how powerful he is, he can get me through anything. He can get me through the gates of hell. That's where I need to be. That's who I need to be with. So in Genesis 1, this powerful spirit, God, says, let there be light, and there was light. A lot of times sitting at the table with somebody, I'll say, you do that. <laughs> and they'll say, what do you mean? I said, make light, just, just speak and make light. They may reach over and turn on a light switch. I'll say, you didn't make light. <laughs> you manipulated some energy there. God spoke and made light. I got three kids. Half the time when I speak, it doesn't make what I said happen. It ought to. They're learning. <laughs> but not always. God speaks in creation responds just by doing what he said 
What is light after all? Some of you may be scientists. Is it a particle? Is it a wave? Is it had mass? Yes, <laughs> but yet, who knows? We still can't figure it out. But God, by saying so, made light. <laughs> and he took away that darkness that was deep and abysmal by the power of his word. And he can take away the dark, the dark deep, abysmal nature that's hiding in your heart and is, a, is, is coming after your soul just by speaking to you. If you'll let him speak and you'll listen. God saw the light, verse 4, that it was good. If you had to guess how many times God's going to say it is good during this week, how many times would you say he's going to say that? Seven times. And the seventh time he's going to say, and it's very good. It's interesting when you think about that. God, after he makes things, assesses them. And he says, that was good. God, after he does something, says that was good. Because it is. Even on my best day, as I'm laying down at night, I might think back and think, that wasn't good. <laughs> there was something I should have done better. I shouldn't have responded that way. I shouldn't have driven that way. I shouldn't have spoken to my wife that way. Something wasn't good. God never has a day like that. <laughs> His nature is that he can only do good. And we'll learn that more as we go through these first chapters of Genesis. And the more comfortable we get with that concept, the more we're going to understand when something happens that I don't think is good, somebody I know and love gets a terrible disease or dies in a car accident or suddenly in some way that I think is tragic, when someone goes in with a gun and shoots up a bunch of kids in a school. That's not good. That's not God. God is good. And even something I struggled with when I was coming to the truth and reading through some of these Old Testament texts, when he says you go in and you slaughter man, woman, child, and all the animals in these nations. And I think, how would a good God ever do that? The God I want to believe in wouldn't do that. But you know what I learned? I'm not good. The things I think of, I can't see beyond just the immediate, the moment. God could see way beyond that. He could see his plan traced out through everything that happens. And there's nothing that he did or commanded that wasn't good. When I see something in the Bible, or when I hear someone teaching something from the Bible, and I think, that's not good, that's not right. God's a chauvinist? <laughs> Forbid. No, he's not a chauvinist. He exalts women more than society ever has. But the way he says things, I don't think they're good. By the way, when I came to the Bible, I was a feminist. That was one of my studies. <laughs> I was a feminist. I had to turn that away. It was hard. There are homosexuals in my family, directly in my family. I had to understand how to deal with that. God is good. And the only way I can help any of those other issues is knowing he's good, showing his goodness into the darkness of these chaotic, empty lives. Because they've rejected what's form and what's good. God looked at it and said it was good. And so he divided, some of you may have the word separated there, the light from the darkness. The root of that word is the word holy. God, by his nature, separates. If you had to guess how many times God's going to separate things in this week, it's seven. Seven's a big number for God in this week especially. Seven times he's going to separate things from each other. He's going to put things into distinct categories because God's a God of order. and He's a God of holiness. And he puts things where they belong. We take them out of order. And so he separated light from darkness and God named the light day and the darkness night. God's the God who gives names. Names are rife with purpose. 
when we see a name, we think about the purpose. We don't do that as much anymore. My last name, Ballard, means bald head. I'm slowly getting there. But eventually I'll be there. But you think of names that used to be like Smith or Wainwright, <laughs> things like that. Those names meant something. That's the guy, you're going to go see John Smith because he can fix your metal. <laughs> you're going to go see Mr. Wainwright because your wagon wheel's broken. Now we've sort of lost that in our society. But it's interesting because one of the first things we ask people is, where are you from? What do you do? <laughs> we still want to know that. We still want to know what their purpose is. It used to be in the names. God's the one who gives name, gives purpose to all of creation. It's interesting that Paul says that it's from God that every family and earth is named. <laughs> it's interesting to think about that. He gives us all purpose. We'll see God naming as we go through these texts. He called the day, the light day, and the darkness he called night. Evening and the morning were the first day. We'll talk about that concept a little bit more as we go through the text, but there are these days that are being counted from day one. There's no sun or moon yet, and yet God is using the word for a 24-hour day as he's making these first several days before the sun, moon, and stars come into play. And we'll consider that a little bit more as we go through. But I hope you've seen the power of just this text. <laughs> There's a lot here. And like I said, on the PowerPoints, you'll find more and more, because I've been doing these studies for years now. I've keep, people keep bringing me more stuff to put in there. I keep finding more stuff. You will begin to see Genesis everywhere you look in the Bible. If you've ever uh, visited the website for Answers in Genesis, the people, Ken Ham and the guys who made the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum, they work exclusively on Genesis 1 through 11. I started doing this, by the way, before I found out about them. But they do a lot of really good work on some of these same topics. And it's amazing what they'll show you and what science confirms about the things that come from creation. But before we finish today, I just want to talk with you about this question of formlessness, of chaos, this question of emptiness, and this question of darkness, maybe in your own life, or certainly in the lives of those you love. The only one who can speak light into darkness is God. The only one who can bring order out of chaos is God. The only one who can fill in the void is God. The New Testament, Jesus is the light of the world. <laughs> he is the fullness of him who fills all in all. He has come to establish the order by seeking that which was lost and bringing it back to the Father. Jesus is the answer to all of these issues that we created with sin. If you don't know the Lord, then we want to share him with you. If you do, but haven't been serving him as spirit, we want to help you do that better. If there's a way we can do that, please make it known. The men here would love to help you with that. I personally would love to help you. If we can help you in any way, make it known. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your obedience.